This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist in Trepid Journeys, adapted from his book Pedal Power, Roy Sinclair and his partner Harlico from Japan reach the Lake District. It's 2006. England beat Ecuador 1-0 in World Cup soccer. The suspense stirs strong patriotic emotions on both sides. Sleepless nights by firelight a stranger in this town heard by talking long and singing songs I have laid my loneliness down so long descend with peaceful friends there is no richer wine Ecuador a country historically overrun by the Incas, the Spaniards and military junta is used to struggle and adversity. In trade, it markets cocoa and bananas. In sport, it passionately pursues soccer. In World Cup soccer of 2006, the small South America Republic tunes in to a gripping game. England gets a goal. It's to be the only goal in a match memorable for Ecuador's frantic but futile efforts to hold England to a draw. As this unfolds, we're cycling along Lake Windermere in the English county of Westmoreland to the tourist town of Appleby to stay at the YHA hostel for a day as a spell on a journey from Land's End that's taken us 1,100 kilometres so far in 18 days. We take the time to do bicycle maintenance and look round town. In narrow side streets, cafes and shops entice tourists inside, delightfully compact premises. As for events peculiar to the town, each year Appleby attracts hundreds of gypsies to its annual horse sale. A daily Royal Air Force sortie of howling, low-flying jet fighters is less welcome. What truly transfixes the locals, however, is that England won't win another game in World Cup competition of 2006. British soccer fans in Stuttgart are duly disappointed. Ugly scenes of a street brawl between English and German supporters in Stuttgart is on the news. Commentators report on more than 120 English soccer fans being arrested after taking exception to how German fans celebrate their 2-0 victory over Sweden in the World Cup competition. English fans allegedly pelted German supporters with bottles and plastic chairs. The riot is quelled by both British and German police. With crowds and conflict overtaking the world, we're thankful to enjoy New Zealand's unspoiled spaces, 
yet threatened by housing estates of the rich marching onto one's pristine land. Rising pressure of people and their expectations of life in the Lake District puts at risk the essence of venturing there to see its scenic splendour. We know how it was before its fame spread, thanks to the keen eye and detailed descriptions of the borough treasurer-turned-traveller, Alfred Wainwright. In his middle age, he took time out to go walking in the Lake District, exploiting to the hilt, and sometimes beyond it, public legal access to cross over others' land in the countryside, a greater freedom of access than enshrined in New Zealand law. It took him thirteen years of mostly solitary walks and beautifully crafted, handwritten and hand-drawn walking guides. They're still trusted guides, accompanying walkers in the wild, despite their printing being more than sixty years ago. Some believe Alfred Wainwright, tall, of dull disposition, walked so far as he did to escape an unhappy marriage, yet his popularity with walkers endures. In places where his accurately drawn sketches of paths extend over strictly private land, landowners daren't complain for fear of ridicule. His guides sell a million copies, with royalties going to the Cambrian Animal Rescue Project. The office where he worked put in a museum display of Wainwright's memorabilia, such as his old walking stick, boots, camera and typewriter. He's a traveller content to enjoy those hundreds of fells of his homeland rather than venture abroad to see Europe's Alps. In contrast to author Alfred Wainwright, a poet from Lake District who is often abroad, the poet William Wordsworth finds domestic bliss in marrying cousin Mary, sharing their home with his sister Dorothy. It's called Dove Cottage in a picturesque village of Westmoreland, where they lived for nearly a decade around 1800. Harlico and I are keen to continue our cycle holiday, but not without visiting the poet's haunts and gravestone. From here, he and Dorothy from time to time go to Scotland or elsewhere in Britain on walking tours, reflected in their poetry. We're on the tale of a tour of Dove Cottage, enjoying the commentary of a guide, Ian Jones, who turns his attention to our bikes, surprisingly voicing his view that we're not a cycling country. It disappoints me, a keen reader of Britain's Cycling Plus and Cycle magazines, to hear suggested that their fascinating photo coverage and articles don't, after all, tell the whole truth. Why would British motorists be unwilling to share their road with us, the cyclists? Ian should know what he's talking about. Soon he'll be setting out on his tandem across France, a country, he says, with much more respect for cyclists. And his partner on the tandem? My friend cannot see, but he has very strong legs. We've enjoyed our visit and look forward to lunch at Keswick then to skirt Bussenthwaite Lake on a quiet road, or so we thought. Just beyond the end of the lake, we spot Castle Inn. It calls for a refreshment stop, as it had been for coaches in the 1700s. Now it looks over manicured lawn and garden. Whilst chatting to a guest, he says he admires what we're doing, but worries about the busy roads. I once loved bike riding and Every day rode four miles each way to work. There were four regular cyclists working for the same company. 
two were killed. I thought that was too high as an average, so gave it up. In the hills of Cumberland they're quiet country roads, but as our route finds flat land where we turn towards Carlisle, traffic's a nightmare. We quickly clock up kilometres as we dare not relax our focus. Survival with any distractions. Our day ends on a balmy evening in a camp Arlico came up with near Dalston, a few kilometres from Carlisle. We spot the entrance, turn into its long drive, winding through trees, emerging into the open to reveal plush buildings and perfect lawns of a golf club. Curious, its members generously invite us to make use of the golf club bar. And we do. Most camps in Britain are very good. However, hot water, cooking facilities and refrigeration generally are not. Overcoming that drawback are many convenience stores near motor camps. We crawl into our tent, knowing the next day we'll pedal into Scotland. John O'Groats, here we come. I've been with a few of my cronies, one or two pals of mine. We went in a hotel, we did very well, and then we came out once again. And then we went into another, that is the reason I'm fooled. We had six docking Dorises, then sang a chorus, just listen, I'll sing it to you. I belong to Glasgow, dear old Glasgow town. But there's something the matter with Glasgow For it's going round and round I'm only a common old working lad As anyone can see But when I get a couple of drinks on a Saturday Glasgow belongs to me There's nothing in being teetotal and saving a shilling or two If your money you spend You've nothing to lend Isn't that all the better for you? I belong to Glasgow Dear old Glasgow town But there's something the matter with Glasgow For it's going round and round I'm only a common old working lad as anyone can see But when I get a couple of drinks on a Saturday Glasgow belongs to me Our crossing from England to Scotland is really low-key. Today, cycling over the border by bridge seems innocuous compared with how the River Sark emerged as crucial to the Scots' 1448 triumph over the English in the Battle of Sark. Imagine the setting. Scots are coming from the north. Braving arrows of English longbow archers, they burst on the battlefield, forcing the English against the River Sark. For centuries, the region either side of the boundary is lawless, with repeated raids in either direction till the Union of Crowns in 1603, with the accession of James VI of Scotland to the throne of Kingdom of England. In effect, uniting both realms under the one monarch. 
We arrive in time for morning coffee at the village of Gretna Green, famous for celebrating runaway marriages for eloping couples. Taking advantage of 18th century laws in Scotland, marriage was open to couples as young as 16. They simply need to say before witnesses they intend to marry. No marriage ban must notify the marriage in advance or be read aloud at worship for the church to give its sanction to a union. Considering how quick and uncomplicated is marriage at Gretna Green, there's little wonder why couples come across the border creek from England to marry there, sometimes pursued by an anxious or angry father. Predictably, Gretna, with its lax marriage laws, is a lure. Young, desperate lovers like to consummate their marriage legally and without guilt. Sadly, stories are told of distraught parents pursuing young, star-struck lovers to Gretna Green in the hopes that the nuptials be abandoned. In other circumstances, young brides enamoured with their suitors' promises of great things are brought down to earth, abandoned to their sorry fate in Scotland by callous lovers who got their way by bribery never fulfilling all the promises made. It's a potent mix of emotion. Angry fathers in pursuit, fiends and fraudsters on the prowl for unsuspecting women. Gretna Green is never far from scandal. It's one of the world's earliest marriage towns. Its oldest marriage certificate dated 1772, the village blacksmith sometimes performing the ceremony, hence the expression, anvil priest. A cafe answers my inquiry about whether there be any ceremonies that day by surly stares of staff. Our only business in Gretna Green being to enjoy coffee, muffins and a free read of the Scotsman, we depart without saying more. To be in Scotland we should be excited. Harlico may not have my Scottish heritage, but Japan similarly has an historic clan-type society.
deteriorating weather drives us to shelter in Dumfries at a bed and breakfast in a terrace house next to the former home of actor John Laurie, best known for his part as Private Fraser in the long-running BBC comedy Dad's Army. Always the pessimist in the parody of local defence volunteers of World War II, vowing to fight to the last man on the beaches and in the hills and in the streets if the Germans landed. Who do you think you are kidding, Mr Hitler, if you think we're on the run? The boys who will stop your little game We are the boys who will make you think again Cause who do you think you are kidding Mr Hitler If you think old England's done Mr Brown goes off to town on the A21 But he comes home each evening and he's ready with his gun so watch out, Mr. Hitler, you have met your match in us. If you think you can crush us, we're afraid you've missed the bus. Cause who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler? In the fading evening, we make our way down a narrow alley to the Globe Inn, once the favoured meeting place of the Scott Pard, Robbie Burns, while working as an exciseman in Dumfries, whose words inspire his countrymen in their difficult dialect. In the years since Robbie Burns died in 1796, the Globe Inn is little changed. Leaving the bar a moment, he shows us where Robbie and friends spend evenings awaiting the mail. It's semi-private, next to the main bar. Taking a large key, he gestures to a steep staircase, and with a knowing wink he says, Follow me. At the top is a solid door. The key slides into the lock, which he opens with reverence. It's where Robbie Burns stays during visits to the Globe. The four-poster bed fireplace and favourite chair are just as they were. He had three wives and twice as many mistresses. He loved them as much as his poetry. He lusted after women. As for his poetry, well, we Scots say Burns is our national patriotic poet and better than Shakespeare. Our barman admits to having slept in Burns' bed. It's so soft. I was so drunk. There might have been twenty-five ghosts, but I wouldn't have known. He talks of the room being haunted, feeling a little chilly and damp compared to the rest of the building. He invites us to sit in Robbie Burns' favourite chair, but a proviso is, if we can't recite a line from Burns, we're to shout around to everyone in the bar. We could always resort to reciting a red, red rose or old lang syne, Harlico observes everyone else is drinking beer rather than toasting to the bard in whiskey. Not so very Scottish, Roy son. She's right. Next morning, our breakfast is a magnificent spread with even a black pudding. We chat with other guests in no hurry to break the spell of Scottish hospitality. When, finally, we're ready for the road, 
We cross the pedestrian suspension bridge over River Neath to tour St. Michael's Churchyard, where Robbie Burns' remains are buried within a Grecian mausoleum along with his wife's and five of their children. A local tipped us off to the plight of another woman in Robbie Burns' life. She put up with a lot, our informant says, a real saint. We find her statue on a busy intersection, overlooking the grimy spires of St. Michael's. In the statue, a child's hands are wrapped around the arm of Jean, the long-suffering wife of Robbie Burns. The child's mother at birth was Anna, one of Robbie's conquests, a barmaid of the globe who shared his poetic taste. Their friendship gradually became an affair that produced a daughter, which Robbie freely admits, the mother enshrined in his Anna of the Golden Locks. But Anna dies while her daughter is still young. It's then Robbie's wife, Jean, raises that daughter as if her own. Ten thousand miles 
A passerby, seeing our bicycles, asks if we're interested to see a replica of the world's first self-propelled bicycle, with its rear wheel driven by pedals and cranks. In a small bike shop museum behind Drumlanry Castle, just beyond Carron Bridge, we find it. On such a machine, its inventor, Thornhill Blacksmith, Kirkpatrick McMillan, rides to Glasgow in 1842. This prototype preceded by 30 years the preferred machine, the penny farthing. It's a gem in Rick's Bike Shack, a rustic setting off the beaten track, it being Sunday. Mountain bikers are there enjoying a barbecue outside a building on the perimeter of the castle. The most friendly of Scots, the owner of the shop, Rick Allsop, spots us as going end-to-end in Britain. He shows us a famous bicycle replica, taking it outside for a photo with us and invitation to take it for a spin. It is all the essentials of the modern bicycle, but is made mostly of wood with heavy wooden wheels. The rear wheel is driven by metal rods attached to the pedals. It calls for a different technique to ride. The steering seems very heavy. When I lurch forth, it's to a bone-shaking ride. Dangerous at first. The bicycle is barely under control. Once mastering the knack, we're away laughing. The inventor, Kirkpatrick McMillan, spent years of experiment to perfect how to get the pedals and cranks to synchronize efficiently. In 1842, on reaching Glasgow on his pioneering ride, a crowd gathered to inspect the strange bicycle. In the melee, a child is knocked over accidentally, suffering no injury. Nonetheless, the police arrest the inventor, who spends the night in jail. Kirkpatrick Macmillan is brought before the court next day, fined five shillings for recklessness. Rick tells us of the popular belief that the magistrate, being most impressed with the defendant's mechanical achievement, slips him the five shillings to pay the fine. You're welcome to join us next week on Historic Souvenirs to hear another in the series dramatising the story of Harlico and Roy Sinclair on their tour of Britain end to end. This programme, Historic Souvenirs, is proudly supported by New Zealand On Air. Episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.